digger here and ain't no wannabes here with some not so nice advice for your writing career to be clear no punches will be pulled but the punch may be spiked how they like before they get on the mic to my left we got the mighty Mer Lafferty and if I piss her off believe me she'll come after me and her co-host Matt Evan Wallace on the right yes she may be half as hype as she could take him in a fight so settle in folks buckle in and boot up time to meddle in a way to make your writer shut up it's hard work but the perk is that it's fun and exciting Facebook will still be there when you're done writing Ditch Diggers! Okay, coming to you live from the uh, Sticky Floor Movie Theater with all the sequels. It is Gail Carriger 2 Electric Boogaloo episode of Ditch Diggers with Mer Lafferty, Matt Wallace, and Gail Carriger back again. How are you, Gail? I'm good. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm a lot more casual, I guess, than last time because this sort of just happened and I couldn't plan for it. So I'm a little... Uh, discombobulated okay yeah yeah we wanted gail back on she wanted to come on then when we all sat down here this morning or this afternoon none of us could remember what we were going to talk about (laughs) (laughs) but i think three writers nobody wrote anything down we've got a plan now classic yeah got a plan okay so matt how are you doing I'm doing great. I, you know, I love it. The episode's so nice. We're doing it twice. I just wanted to get that in at some point because it was okay. in my head. So now I've said it, and I'm good. But yeah, no, I think uh, I think we all forgot because we're all just dealing with a lot of burnout right now, and that's mm-hmm. on my mind. And maybe we can talk about that at another time. But I'm just happy that Gail is back. It's never casual when you're here, Gail. You make <laughs> you make everything fancy just with your presence. I make it yes. Everything's fancy pants when I'm around. Yes, exactly. Definitely. That should be another T-shirt. Everything is fancy pants when I'm around. All right, let me write it down. I have started. No, no, what, I have started. That's what, go on. No, sorry. I just love that's so like us. It just makes me happy because like we didn't write down any of the show-related shit from last week or what we want to do for this show. Murr not only wrote down the T-shirt ideas though. She made mock-ups of the T-shirts and put them on she the website. She made pretend T-shirts that yep. she's that not. Is, yeah, I, I is, could sell them. It's just we make T-shirts like almost every show, and I don't know we, overwhelming people with T-shirts. Maybe we could just do like a, this is a limited time thing. You've got two weeks to buy this, and then it's gone. We should like yeah. the Venture the Venture Brothers T-shirt Club. They're bringing that back. We should totally do something like that, like a shirt of the week for the epi- specifically related to the oh episode. My God. We should have been doing that forever. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, we're in the future now, Mer. We don't have to stock T-shirts. Like we can make it happen. Send uh, T-shirts to our fans, or not to the fans, but to the guests. Yes. This was this T-shirt from your episode. I know you love T-shirts, Gail. I know you've got layered T-shirts on beneath that cardigan. I know you do. No, I'm actually like, I made a funny face because I was like, you don't need to waste money on the guests, but like, you should send them a. You should definitely send them a link to the t-shirt that came from their episode so they can promote the t-shirt. Okay. Like, that you should do, Mer. <laughs> like, I, I, okay. far be it for me to teach you how to merchandise no, your business. No, no, no. I <laughs> clearly am not very good at it. I love that your brain, that part of your brain never turns off, Gail. ABC, never all day. Always, always be never. closing. Like, the marketing the marketing never always. ends because it literally never ends. Like, you're never done with it. So, so Well, it's because my, my only principle is give the people what they want. And if they want a t-shirt, give them a damn t-shirt and then tell them that they right. want the t-shirt and show them where to get it. Like, it's like a loop. Yeah. You just have to close the loop. <laughs> but again, it would almost be against our brand to do that. Our brand is don't, don't write any show topic shit down. Do write down this, the dumb t-shirt ideas. Do make mock-ups of them. But also don't sell the t-shirts after you've done all that work. Don't complete that either. 
either. That's that's who we are, and I love who we are, and I don't want to change who so we like are. Like a podcast ED, basically. <laughs> and when I, like I and when I, a little bit. Yeah. I say, a little bit, please. Uh, also, I do want to add the addendum that when I say we, well, shit, we did all that. I mean, Mur did all that because I'm useless. <laughs> I can't even contribute to the fake t-shirt ideas. That's how useless I am in this process. So that's just our brand. And we, we have to embrace it to some extent. I'm not saying we shouldn't improve, but I think at some point you do have to embrace it a little bit to yes, be happy. The, the distinct irony or, or catastrophe or whatever it is yeah. that you're embracing. Exactly. <laughs> In the chat, kids are asleep. Says ditch diggers full ADHD. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And you gotta. And again, you gotta embrace it. Don't deny it. Embrace it. Yeah. Um. So before we get also started, also a good T-shirt. <laughs> that is a good Which one was that? Another one. <laughs> Which was the full T-shirt? Full ADHD. Full ADHD. Embrace it. On the back, yeah, don't deny it. Full ADHD on the back, don't deny it, embrace it. I like it. <laughs> oh, man. But none of this is what we're here to talk about, right. Mer wanted, and Gail. I, I did want to talk about two things. One, Matt's and, my, Matt's and my birthday is tomorrow, and we are both just loving to celebrate our birthdays. Even as, older, older, even as we get older, it's still awesome. Um, so I just want to say happy birthday, Matt. And Happy birthday! Do you think, I, love- I have to ask. Do you think being like besties or whatever you two are to each other, um, that and sharing a birthday has made you more like I don't know, accepting of said birthday? Because I hate it when my birthday rolls around. Well, I've always, like, always been someone who loved my birthday. Always. Okay, so you are. <laughs> what yeah. about you, Matt? Um, I am thoroughly over the concept of having a birthday. It's not that I resent aging or I have a problem with it. I'm totally fine with that part. I accept my gray hair and love it. I accept my aging and I love it. I, I think my 40s are going to be the best decade of my life. Your hair looks Just the great. Idea. Thank you. No, I have I have amazing hair. That's not even a question. Um, it's the only useful thing my father gave me. But that's a topic for another time. Uh, so I'm over the idea of birthdays in general. The, but I will say the one thing about my birthday that I do like is that I do share it with Murr and it's a thing and we bonded over it and every year we can kind of make it a thing. That oh, makes me like my birthday. So, yeah, no, that's it's a thing. That's a, that's a thing I could sink my teeth into that is birthday related. It's about the only thing. It's like, no, I share a birthday with Murr. Yeah, we're friends and we do this podcast together and it's our birthday. So we always, yeah. So that, that it does make, it helps me enjoy it more. It doesn't, I don't need to be more accepting of it. I just, I'm not huge on the concept, but it makes me enjoy it more. I will absolutely say that for sure. Thank you. Dana. I love that. It's like you yeah. have your little your little cinnamon roll squishy center. That's good. <laughs> there's, too, a mur, there's a mur in your cinnamon roll squishy center. It's getting weird. It is. It's, it's there. The the, fro- the, fro- the frosting is a little crusted, a little scabby, but it's there. It's there. It's like a protective coating at this point, which you need. It, it, it protects my soft squishy layer. So there you go. <laughs> the second thing I wanted to mention. <laughs> um, Matt and I made it weird. It's okay. It's it happens. Uh, also part of our brand. Go ahead, Mer. I'm behind and like I've been trying to grab sound clips and put them on the inner in in the Facebook photo thing, Instagram and and the TikToks and do little little bitty commercials and shit. But I didn't get to it last week. Right. But I want to say that the the thing that stayed with me throughout the past couple of weeks is Gail saying failure is a data point. And I actually used that this morning to feel better. I had tried a a crafting project in the basement that should have done great and it failed horribly. And once I figured out 
why it failed. I'm like, oh, I've learned something. Failure's a data point. She's right. Still doesn't mean I didn't <laughs> waste expensive crafting material and stuff, but still, I learned something, and I'm trying to take it as a data point instead of as a the other meaning of failure. So thank Maybe you, this Gail. Is, this, oh, I'm, I'm delighted, but also like again, we were discussing how this is how my brain works. But uh, I always love it when a craft. I'm also I get into crafts and do crafts and stuff like that. I think most creatives do, uh, whether we like it or not. But like, you know, like, and I will spend an hour hand sewing something mm -hmm. and then put that thing on and be like, no, I don't like it. And it's not going to integrate into my wardrobe. Um, I was like, this has been a failure. This this skirt is a failure. And then I was like, I get to get rid of it. Um, but that's the so data point. But also, uh, I get to get rid of it. And me, I get very excited when I get to get rid of things. So maybe that's another skill set to try to cultivate is this the like delight in the purging of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like I like to get rid of stuff. So like if you've discovered a craft and then you try the craft and then you don't like the craft, you get to pass the craft on to somebody else. <laughs> Not into watercolor. You can find somebody who is. You know? Yeah. Good point. I love that. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's like being it's like being an archaeologist of your own interests and hobbies and career. Oh my god, I've been overhauling my old blog posts recently. Um <laughs> so but this this does dovetail to data. So okay. I uh, started blogging in 2009 when my first book came out. Uh, I think I was blogging before that on like live journal and places like that, but officially 2009. And so I have a record essentially of my entire author career of because at, at the beginning it was like a proper little live journal -y blog where I would be like, I went to BEA, I met so and so, you know, stuff like that. And uh, and so I'm kind of going back through and archiving stuff and like just cleaning it up and stuff because I realized via data that my blog is a big traffic mover of eyeballs to my books and stuff like people are still finding that old blog posts and linking to old blog posts so like I need to have current books mentioned in older blog posts and it needs to be sort of more organic but also it's a ton of content and like I, I went through a phase last year where I was just sort of reposting links to old blog posts that were perennial content, you know, like recommendation lists of books that I steampunk books or whatever. And I was reposting them and I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just reposting. And enormous number of people were clicking on this stuff. <laughs> I was just like, wait, that's like a four year old blog post. But nope, a bunch of people were like, we would love to go see what the steampunk books were for you. And I was like, OK. Um, so it makes it valuable content because then I don't have to write new stuff. I can just repost to old stuff. Uh, but it means I need to spend some time cleaning them up. <laughs> so that's what, I'm yeah. doing. that's what I'm doing with I should be writing episodes. I'm I'm putting yeah. commentary on them, cleaning them up, and then reposting them in a new feed. So I hear that. Yeah, it's not a bad idea because no, you generate sorry. content. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's 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 a little bit like to like dovetail this to career author. It's a little bit like remembering your old books that you've written. Like. Mm -hmm new people are discovering your old books just because traditional publishing decided it was dead after a month or two. That doesn't mean that you have to believe that. Like, right. definitely, like new people will come in with your newer books and you need to remind them that you have older stuff that they should also read, that there are other books out there that you wrote that are good and fun. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing that as well because as uh, you two were complaining, I have 30 books now. So I have a lot of old books to send people to, to discover. We were not and complaining, also we were people... impressed. 
<laughs> I have a lot of people finding me via the traditionally published stuff because it's doing most of the legwork in terms of outreach still. Right. Um, so I need to grab those people and be like, I also wrote all this other stuff. Go read that. Too. I also well, just love that we've we've all been doing this so long that we can have like you can have like a Murr classic brand or like a Gale classic brand. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Here's, yeah. The, the, here's the vintage stuff. <laughs> here's the, yeah. <laughs> Um, but we were going to talk about your career and uh, going from uh, best-selling traditionally published author to with thirty books to uh, <laughs> oh bye oh, Matt Matt went away <laughs> anyway to uh, you know well tell it's us what happened with the, tell tell us what happened with the recent trad attempt yeah yeah so this is I, I mean I, I'm mentioning this because. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's interesting for newer authors and existing authors. I mean, a little bit like I have a point. I, I swear, a little bit like I, I do quite a few writing retreats where it's both established authors and newer authors just writing together in a house somewhere. I, I, I'm kind of a weirdly social writer, and I enjoy it a lot. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we tend to do is proof of write, where you read a little bit of what you wrote that day, but there's no critique involved. So you know, don't be scared. But um, but people, newer writers, still find it scary to read out loud in front of other authors. Um, but I think it's actually really good in the long run because the newer authors get to hear the more established authors reading out loud and they suck. Everybody sucks because it's a rough draft. So we all suck. And it's actually like a good experience to be like, oh, right. At, at In the first draft stage, it, everyone sucks. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is kind of like that in that when that I just wanted to make a point that when an established author is not writing to market or not writing to the brand that the audience and traditional publishing expects of them, that we are going to collect rejections just like everybody else, that the publishing houses are in this to make money. And if they can't perceive a way that even if you're a front list author, which I am, even if you are frontless, but that particular series is not going to make money. They're not going to, they're not going to go for it. Um, and so, yeah. So I just kind of wanted to talk about that experience so that, that everybody was a prepared for this like future possibility in their career, but also B could, could see somebody who is an established author failing, <laughs> but not being too perturbed by it, I guess. Yes, <laughs> but I not have, being too perturbed by it. I, love I have that. to hit the yay button for you, uh, Gail, because you did, um, you did wrong podcast get... though right isn't that the well yes but people right. can see and hopefully Conf confetti if you if you're listening confetti. to this and you can't see it there is confetti and so cheers there are cheers for some reason i can't hear the cheers but it looks like their cheers are happening anyway that's the i hit the yay button for you so you could have confetti and cheers oh. in theory so, so in theory <laughs> well, i hear the cheers i didn't know if they were happening or not Theoretical I cheers. Them, but I, I, I believe I believe in them. I believe in the that's, cheers. That's the most author hands. shit ever, though. That's the most I write book shit ever. Theoretical yes. cheers. We we assume they're out there. Yes, we assume yeah. people are reading. We don't we don't know though. We don't know. We assume people are reading the books. Cheers <laughs> happened. The chat confirms. Good. Yay. Awesome. Thank you, yeah. chat. Okay. So So what read? happened? Should we talk about what happened? T talk about what happened. All right. So I have three series with traditional publishing, which is about 13 books and then some other spin-off stuff, um, you know, uh, hardcover editions, illustrated editions, mangas. The mangas are actually my best sellers. Um, and ah. then, 
Yeah, yeah, the mangas are. I my, I got a number one on New York Times out of a manga, Whoa. not on the graphic novel list, like not on any of the other lists on one of the baby lists, but still, it's a number one. Um, that kind of thing. So you know, pretty good, pretty good, well, well established in that arena, but specifically one genre, which was steampunk, and um. And then through the course of my final book series with my traditional, my first publisher, so that's, I worked with two different publisher uh, imprints. I worked with Orbit and Little Brown Young Readers, or LBYR, both of whom are under Hachette, um, which actually helped me that I was with two imprints under the same umbrella company because there were was a time where we had to negotiate between two series happening at once and it got a little messy. And I think if I had not, if I had been with two separate companies, it might've been more difficult than it was. Um, and they're all successful. Um, all the different series hit New York Times. All, all you know, whatever definition of success you'd like to you'd like to put them under. But about halfway through my third uh, series, which was my second one with Orbit, they started to do some things that I didn't agree with. I'd had the advantage of being able to be sort of experimental and a bit bossy early on in my career because my first book was more successful than they expected. And I know that because of the size of my advance and the advertising and some of the risks that they took with that book, they maybe wouldn't have taken if they'd expected more of it and so on and so forth. So that's a whole other discussion to take. But um, <clears throat> so I have a history with traditional publishing of still being very experimental under the umbrella of traditional publishing. So they, I performed better in ebook early on this was in 2008 the beginning of ebook so i my books performed better than some of the other than any other book they had under their house at the time so they would do things like come up to me and be like well amazon would like to do like a 99 cent gold box sale on the first book we don't know what that is but would you like to try it and i'd be like yes try the thing try do the thing like try experiment like whatever it is sure like let's give it a try um so yeah so i've always been very experimental with my career itself i should say even under trad and they my book was an experiment for them to take on in the first place they had steampunk second wave steampunk was a totally new concept everything they didn't like they come to me and are like we don't know what to put on the cover of this book you know stuff like that so it was it was all kind of chaos that, at the that, beginning that's there. comforting hearing that this is because oh, it was not, so confusing. Not um, being a graphic designer myself, I trust them to know what to put on the cover of a book because I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm. It's infamous because please don't expect this if you are a new author. Um, I'm infamous for having chosen my cover art. Um, I actually found the art because they were asking me for ideas for Solace, which is my first one. Um, wherever the hell it is, this one. Oh, the famous one um this cover so i was on live journal back in the day again 2008 everybody and um uh and i was on a lot of steampunk fashion uh, i'm into fashion shocking uh so it's on a lot of <laughs> steampunk fashion feeds on live journal and donna who's the model who i know is a friend of mine now <laughs> um steampunk's very small community uh she posted a couple of these photos from a shoot she was doing for a she owned a shop so she was wearing some of the designs that were for sale and uh orbit and i had been chatting and i just ganked the image and like pinged it to orbit because i was like this is kind of the aesthetic and sort of the character 
an image of a character of a, a character that would appear. This is I basically was like, here's an idea since you don't seem to have any. Um, and the next thing I know, they had contracted with her and bought the image for the cover. Wow. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, that was fun. Mm -hmm. uh, we, um, but that's way back when. So all this has happened about halfway through my last series with with them with this publishing house um things started to get a little strange so they they'd already done some things that i was like i'm not really happy with that choice you're making like brought me out in hardback for the first time so my books were actually recently originally released in mass market paperback and i actually fought really hard for that i, mm -hmm. I begged them to not release me in hardback i thought it was such a weird book it was such a strange tie-in that it just needed to be cheap for people to try it and they weren't going to try it at 30 bucks a pop but they would at eight dollars and i was like mm -hmm. jim butcher's coming out with a book patricia briggs is coming out with a book this kind of it's like right in that vein they're going to pay 30 bucks for one of those but they might and they might pay 38 bucks for one of those and this one at the same time if mm -hmm. it's only eight dollars right i was like Ugh. um and thankfully they they did it um, and that's exactly what happened, you know, at point of sale, like in what was Borders and Barnes and Noble and places like that back then. People were wandering in to buy the latest fancy, big, fat hardcover of whatever mm. author they really loved and then saw this little eight dollar thing. And were like, well, that looks interesting. Um, and that's how I got a career. So <laughs> I <laughs> was. No, very... I love that. I love that so much. And I think so many authors they don't understand the negatives of having the negatives of having a big hardcover release and forced hardcover releases on authors are a huge problem that again, I just don't think a lot of good. You just think like, Oh, I'm getting a hardcover. That's a big fancy book. I must be a big fancy author. It'll look so pretty. Like I had, I thought that at one point, cause I just didn't know any better. So I just, yeah. I love that you just explained so succinctly and so well how that could be a huge detriment and how a paperback release could be such a huge benefit to so many, uh, especially debut So many people, authors. especially for new authors. Yes. Um, and, you know, there was a big stink, which I totally get with Barnes & Noble's CEO saying that they weren't going to have debut, particularly in the YA arena in hardcover mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. um, because it particularly stymied, um, like, uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter post-acquisition in the YA arena. Um, right. So those authors were going to be the most the authors most detrimentally impacted by that decision, which is all round up fucking shit show. Like, let's be very clear on that arena. But there was me in the sideline being like, yeah, I, I, I don't think I don't think debut authors in general should be launched in hardcover. Like, mm -hmm. I don't I think that's an old fashioned business model. And I think if you're smart, um, you move to a luxury scarcity model where you release in paperback and then if the book does very well or the series does very well, you repackage in a really fancy hardcover that's for collectors. That's yeah. for people who really like, you know, with a, maybe a new cover or as an omnibus edition or whatever it is. Um, that's for people who are super fans of the series who want a beautiful art item to put on their shelf. There's a whole reason why trad doesn't do this. Uh, they like, you know, there's the devaluing of the book. There's the association with hardback and literati and greater critical acclaim and acceptance. And, a lot of other like I understand the dynamic of what's going on here, but I'm also like I'm a bit of a green planet person, so I'm also kind of like hardbacks real bad for the environment. Like paperbacks bad enough, hardbacks real bad. <laughs> like shipping, everything like paper use, like ugh, um, gives me wrenching feeling in my gut. So um, 
anyway, so they started releasing my third series. But they said my second series was in hardback because it was a YA, and it did very well. Like I'm in hardcover and as a series, my YA series is did great, like super great. They bought it for a lot of money, and they spent a lot of money on marketing as a result. That's the way it works. The more money they mm-hmm. spend on your advance, the more money they're going to give you for marketing. Mm-hmm. And they spent a lot of marketing. And because it was me, they did a lot of experimental marketing. And I was like, great, go for it. <laughs> um, they gave me killer color covers that were very established with my brand. Like everything worked great with my YA series, including that they were hardback releases. Mm-hmm. And then they, my third adult series was going to come out and my third series or my second adult series. And they started to apply the same principles as they had with the YA and it, it just didn't work as well. Um, and so, you know, that was happening. Um, so I think I got orphaned a couple of times by my editor. And so I was just getting increasingly sort of disenchanted with trad and I'd already started doing some indie spinoff stuff. Um, so from a like nitty gritty standpoint, one of the things to know about me and my career is I have a very tight option clause with all of my contracts. And that's because when I was first negotiating my contract, it was very clear I would be willing to walk if my option clause wasn't tight because I had. <laughs> so I'd already walked from one publisher. So the option clause is basically the clause that says the publisher has the right to buy the next book in the series or the next series from the author or whatever it is. And that option clause can be written many different ways. Most of the time, it's like the next sci-fi book written by this author or the next fantasy book written by the next YA book or the next middle grade. Or length, or the next novel. Full, next full, yes. Mine essentially said the next full-length novel written under the name Gail Carriger set in alternate history. Yeah. And that's great. That's a very tight option clause. It means anything that's not under there, I could do whatever I want with it. So when I decided to write YA, I didn't have to offer it to this publisher. I, I offered it to one of the other publishers in the house um, or in the umbrella company. And then uh, if I wanted to write novella length, I could write a novella length book set in this universe and there's nothing anybody could do about it, which is exactly what I did. Uh, and that was because the previous contract I was negotiating for this book, they wanted an option clause that was so broad. I was in academia and would be writing white papers and nonfiction, and I would have had to have offered those. They wanted anything written by me, period. (laughs) Right. And I was like, you can't have my articles. Like you can't have my archeology span articles. I'm sorry. Um, and I was like, I'm not signing the contract. And you know, the publisher was like, well, we wouldn't we wouldn't want those and i was like so put it in the contract yeah. i was like exempt nonfiction, and they just refused to change that aspect of the boilerplate and i was like i don't want to be a writer that badly sorry like I'm, I'm happy being an archaeologist that's my career so i'll walk away from the contract and i did so when i was negotiating with orbit they knew i'd already done that so they were very <laughs> much more generous with my option clause it turned out to bite them because i was very happy to like start experimenting with self-publishing which i also did very early and it's actually you guys's fault it's podcasters <laughs> fault because i was a super, sorry i'm like what i'm one of burr's like earliest fans because i was listening to i should be writing like when you started it which was what 2005 or something it was five like way back mm-hmm. and um, and so i was listening to you and like survivor show and all of these early writer podcasts 
And those many of those authors also did audiobook, fiction audiobook podcasts mm -hmm. and were fiction writers and were really early adopters of the self-publishing movement. And so I was kind of paying attention to what all of these podcaster friends, quote unquote, of mine were doing in the fiction realm with self-publishing. And so I've always been sort of keeping an eye on it and very interested in it. And so I, I knew I would like jump on it and experiment. And I put some of my short stories up super early on, like back in the day when you had to use Calibre and Sigil and stuff to form oh it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just to see what it was like to be directly published. And also because it's the only access I had to data. So, I mean, my publishing house gave me royalty reports and I read them. I think I'm like the only author on the planet who reads royalty reports. But like, I still didn't know if when they did the Amazon gold box sale, they sold lots of books. Like, did it work for them? They, they're not gonna give me that information. So I was like, so I need to have some of my own content out there and up on places like Amazon and Barnes Noble, whatever, just to see what kind of trickle over is happening. Like, cause people who are gonna buy my regular books are gonna buy my, my short stories. And then I at least have some ac access to the data of what's going on. And so that was like originally why I started to do it. And then I, you know, I just kept doing it because I was like, well, this is kind of fun. Um, so so I started, I did my first self-published novella in this universe in 2016. Um, so that's when I really sort of started. I had the short stories already out. They'd been out for a couple of years. And so I had my identity on all of the vendor platforms. Like, oh, you know, I owned Gail Carragher on Amazon and places like that. And then, um, and then I happily have been self-publishing probably more and more and more and more. So I transitioned from about 80% 80, 80 traditional income, 20% indie income, and I'm now the opposite. So wow. I have about 20% of my income is residual, like, you know, royalties still, because this, this first series in particular just still keeps selling. Mm -hmm. um, and about 80% self-pub income. You know, there's a little speaking gigs and other stuff in there, but that's about what it is. And um, and then I decided to write a trilogy. So most of my self-published stuff has been solo, like standalone, but linked to the universe. And then I had the a meltdown during lockdown, like many of us did and couldn't write. And then I kept struggling to write and struggling to write and struggling to write. And when I finally emerged, the thing I had to write was sci-fi, which I was like, okay, I have to leave the planet. It turns out makes sense. And yeah. um, and I and my brain wanted to write an entire trilogy all at once, like, bleh, which I'm not like that. I'm not a wordy author. I don't usually write a lot of words. <laughs> so to write like three books back to back for me is crazy time. <laughs> like, and and this one, the second one in the series, is actually even fat. I mean, wow, I don't impressive. write. I know I don't write fat books. Uh, I mean, it's still like less than a hundred thousand words, but it feels really big for me. Um, and so I was like, well, I have a trilogy. It's done. It's written, but it is YA sci-fi <laughs> and it is a space opera. And I was like, and it is me. So it is, I mean, it's cerebral and high concept, but it's also, uh, fun and found family. And there's a romance thread and all the things that I do, um, you know, and queer and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, and I'm not sure if, in fact, I'm pretty sure Trad won't want it. But I still have the same agent I've had forever. She's stuck with me and she's awesome. And this series would make a killer anime, mm -hmm. like killer. And my current film agent specializes in um, animation, uh, in, in um, 
anime style in particular. And so I was like, well, okay. Uh, Trad is easier to get a film deal if you have a traditional publisher behind the book series. So given that they can afford this trilogy and I am not cheap, um, let's see if they're interested in it. And my agent was like, okay. I mean, she'd read the first one and she was like, it's good, but you know, it's not commercial. Like this is just, this is not a genre that sells, right? Tell me the comps for (laughs) YA space opera. It's the YA part. Yeah, exactly. There's none. There's some, there's some kind of, you know, like Becky Chambers or whatever for the, in the adult sphere, but nah. Um, So yeah, so off we went to a submission process at Trad, and uh, it was really interesting because being front list, everyone knows a front list author's numbers. Like they know, they know how many millions of books I have out there. You know, they know I hit the New York Times. They know all of these things about me, right? It's linked to my name. Um, it was really an interesting experience because we went out with this particular book and this particular series, and uh, and Kristen, my agent, was like, "Well, we'll do adult and YA. We'll do both." and see and it's true i could always age up the protag and like change it up a little bit it, it still doesn't really sit comfortably in adult but i could and uh and she sent it to 57 editors and i was like wow first of all i had no idea there were 57 editors left in new york <laughs> like at oh, all. <laughs> i was like overall i was like that's crazy uh she must have used the uk as well i mean she must have done quite a, quite a bit um and not every every and not every one of them even responded, which again is kind of like interesting, uh, but also similar to everyone's experience in the traditional publishing realm. Yeah. Um, and the ones that did respond, and it took a year, and I'm always and and I'm like, oh my god, three books I'm not publishing, like this is my income. <laughs> like we are sitting on these. Um. So I'm very twitchy about the whole experience. But I basically told Kristen I was like at the end of the year. I'm going to self pub. I don't care. And um, yeah. And so we just collected rejections and it was fascinating to me because they were all came in. This is one of these like points, Gail's looking at the failure and being mm-hmm. like, this is so interesting. Um, because pretty much they universally were like, we love it. We love Gail's voice. We can't sell it. <laughs> we have no idea how to sell it. And um, you know the ones that the ones that got back in a positive way, or and you know, and some of them were just like, ah, oh, this isn't for us, or whatever. Um, and a, a lot of it was like coded for. Also, I'm expensive, right? Like I require a six figure advance. Like I'm just not going to sell my rights to anything I write for less than that anymore. And a book like this can't earn it. Can't earn that a trilogy like this. So they don't think. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm doing, I guess I'm going at it alone. Um, And it's been really interesting because I'm running like sort of dedicated sniper ads and a lot of other stuff. And they're right, right? Like it it is a really hard sell. There isn't, there isn't another, there aren't comp books titles out there. So it is rough, not, not like comp book titles that are performing extremely well. Mm -hmm. So it has to be mine. (laughs) Like mine has to be the one that does that. Kristen was really funny. She was like, ah, reminds you of Solace a little bit now, doesn't it? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, it kind of does, because Solace also had no comps when it went out into the world. Um, So are you happy with the sales? You don't have to give us numbers. I'm just curious. Um, Well, this is, I can give you like exact numbers and everything. Um, I'm happy with, not, not as much, it's not as much as I want, 
um, because I'm very, um, I'm very, uh, what's the word I am looking for? Demanding. <laughs> um, but my, I mean, my fan base rallied and does did exactly what they're supposed to do. And they're wonderful. And I love them to death um, and are like 150% like gangbusters for it. So that's great. But not as many as would if this were one of the books in this universe. Um, I mean, readers want what they want. And if they associate you with a thing, they want you to write that thing yeah. again and again and again and again and again. And that's all they want from you. Um, which, as a reader, I kind of get, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what I expect from any of my sci-fi is that it performs about one third as well out the gate as anything that I would have written in this. Right. So I expect one third in sales from anything I would have produced in this book universe. And that's about right. That, that seems that's that's how this one is performing out the gate. Now it's getting a bit more legs. And I anticipate that once the third one is in, in the series is out and I get to brand and say all three books are out, it will start accelerating even more because readers really love a completed mm -hmm. trilogy that they can get sunk into as well. So that will make a difference. Um, but it's, it's also getting like, it's, it's a little bit like Solace. The people who find it are kind of like, oh, I've been looking for this book forever and I didn't realize it, you know, which is always gratifying, yeah. but that's not a, like a data point. Like, I wish I could bottle you and mm -hmm. then target you, but I have no <laughs> idea why you, this is your book. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting and still actively like accumulating the the most interesting thing for me was that i got that that number game i was telling you about where it was one third regular in terms of pre-orders pre-orders are the numbers you have the most direct access to as an indie author so in terms of pre-orders it like sat right on the nose of exactly what i expected in pre-orders on the platforms but i also had just as many pre-orders directly from me and that was very unusual because that many pre-orders is pretty um, crazy for a direct sales platform. So, so it's also convincing those ones who bought it directly from me that they can go, you know, write reviews and talk about the book in, in vendor mm -hmm. <laughs> arenas. Um, and, and, you know, they're coming around. They take a lot of coaxing. It's really funny. I mean, I, I've been through this before, though. Like, I went through this with YA because, you know, when I transitioned from this series to my YA series, a lot of readers basically were like, yeah, but I don't read YA. <laughs> and you're just like, but it's me. It's like the same universe. It's the same fun characters. Oh, like, yeah. What do you mean you just don't read? I don't read YA. And then, like, six seven years later i haven't written anything in this universe for a while and they're finally like oh i guess i'll just try it and then they come back around and they're like oh my god it was so good i loved it i was like yeah because it was still me yeah. and it's just even more of an uphill battle when you off board from one genre to another where people are just like yeah i just i just like the historical romancy stuff like i'm not really i'm not really into the sci-fi and i'm like yeah but it's still me like the thing you really love about me the voice and the message and the themes that i'm exploring those are all still there but readers don't really think about those things um so it's it is a battle to just be like coaxy 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 like no oh, you really you really want to try it i promise it's not gonna hurt <laughs> you'll like it yeah 
So there no, it is. That's the yeah. story of failure. 57, <laughs> 57 no's. It's not a story of failure. It's a story of learning that's from right. failure. Yeah. Yeah. Gathering data. Yeah, but- no, that's, yeah. that's and now like and now having it brought home to me where I'm just like, oh no, they were they were right. It really is a hard sell. Like it really is a hard a difficult like Yeah, it's really difficult to convince people to try the thing um when they, do, when they have yeah. never had anything like it before, you know. Uh, I have a I have a big completely unanswerable unanswerable question that I I want to ask cuz I just I I just Think hearing your answer to it would be very interesting. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go ahead and ask it. I know, just setting you up for failure, Gail. But you can learn from it. That's I'm the ready. Thing of the I, I, I will admit to it. If I if I no, fail no. at something, I don't know it. I, I will admit to it immediately. <laughs> I I love the arc of your career, and I love that you. But a big part of it was having all that data to learn from as you transition more and more into doing mm. your own thing. So the question that naturally rises in my mind is. What do you think your career would have been like if you had started straight out with just self-publishing your work and hadn't had all the trad experience that you had? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I I think it would. I mean, if you're asking that question at the time, I wouldn't have done it because it was Mm. 2008. I grew up in the con scene and like Mm -hmm. self-publishing was absolutely a dirty word. Like you just did it. Even listening to podcasts and having people do it, people I knew who would then become my friends. Like I, it was still like just people just turned their nose up. I mean, still do in, in circles. Um, I mean, I went, I went and sort of actively started hanging out with the romance crew because they were better business women. And also like more accepting of Mm self-publishing. And so I wouldn't have done it. I would have happily continued as an archaeologist, I think, writing on the side if if Sol if nothing like I just kept writing because I had like Solus is not my first book. I'm just like every other author. I had, mm-hmm. you know, at least a dozen books I'd written before this that I submitted to publishing that went nowhere, that just collected rejections that now I look back on and I'm like, oh, I was 18 years old. It sucked. Like, of course, it should not have been published. Thank you for not publishing it. (laughs) But also, like, I was very used to rejection. So, like, I wrote this one basically on a dare to myself. And then, you know, and then I just submitted it because I was like, well, I finished it. I might as well submit it. Um, so I was always pretty casual about the author side of the equations. So I probably would have happily just continued that, uh, trying something new, seeing if it get traditionally published. And then, you know, when the self-publishing thing became a little bit more accepted, I may- maybe would have tried to self-publish stuff. Um, but then I would have been self-publishing in a time where there was a lot more content mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have gotten the killer cover and because I wouldn't have known what I was doing. I wouldn't have known the right cover art. I wouldn't have known the right way to pitch things or whatever. I mean, I'm pretty shameless about it, but I like model my my original goal producing the self-published stuff was to make it look as seamlessly like my traditionally published stuff as possible. So nobody knew that it was secretly being self-published. And and it worked. I mean, now it doesn't matter. But for the first couple of books, like people were like, we don't understand why your trade paperback is so much more expensive than your previous stuff. And I'd be like, that's because because it's from me. Like I have to charge more because it's print on demand. And they'd be like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I did my job well, (laughs) right? Like. But right. like the, 
but but that's because trad gave me tons of lessons right like mm. how to arrange the cover in a way that's consistent with my brand like this these ones combine my they do exactly what they're supposed to do right they combine my this book with this book right these this series of novellas are these characters grown up in this one's universe so i'm like borrowing all of the typology signaling i mean i do, do a couple of things differently i made my name bigger because i'm trading on my name and mm. because traditional publishing has a history of making women's names smaller than men's names mm -hmm. and it pisses me off hey Gail, um, um for our audio <laughs> listeners can you tell us this the series you're holding up and comparing Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm wearing video and I, I forgot that it's also a podcast. So my um, my original series is the Parasol Protectorate series. And then my YA series is the Finishing School series. And the book that I'm talking about and holding up is in the Delightfully Deadly series, which is my self-published series that fits between the the two both in time the characters in their evolution and also it is the finishing school series characters who are ya grown up as the delightfully deadly series spy characters and so i borrowed all the visual elements of these and if you want to i talk about this in a blog post <laughs> um <laughs> But if you want to, um, if you Google uh, Gail Carragher poison or protect cover art, I talk about all of this and the different elements that I like cribbed and why I cribbed them and why I placed things where I did on the cover. I mean, only if you're like very weedy and interested in cover art, would you do this? But this is just an answer to Matt's question is that what Trad gave me was a platform, which I totally acknowledge and accept. My career is very serendipitous. There's a lot of luck into how I was successful, which I also accept. And Trad absolutely capitalized and made me a platform, which I then capitalized on, which I also accept. But also, if you transition to self-publishing as an established Trad author, it's not just the platform. It's all of these other elements that Trad has given you that you can borrow from because they're standardized. But as a purely self-published author, we maybe don't think about these things. So mm. like the layout of the back cover copy, I used my traditional publisher's style of layout, the you know spine arrangement. My traditional publisher gave me these little numbers in images on the spines for each one of the series. So it says number one, number two, number three. I love that. I love that the spine of the book has the order mm -hmm. number of the series. So I do that whenever I Absolutely. do it. And you know, I did that as, on, on the spine of my new series. Um, they, publishers, have little logos for their publishing arm for their imprints. So I gave myself a little logo. It's a little teapot with a G ah, in it. It's adorable. <laughs> right? Awesome. So cute. I mean, I hired That's somebody awesome. to make it for me, but yeah. So, like, so I just hmm. basically kind of imitated them in the way they behave in arranging the physical book itself. I took my... You know, uh -huh. um, how I format the book, basically, I originally I had a hired formatter. So I basically just sent her a copy of one of my traditionally published books. And I was like, I kind of like the way this is formatted. Just do it like that, where the page numbers go. And like, it's just stuff like that. Like we just, if you have, if you have it already, then you don't have to invent it whole cloth from yourself. And I think for self-publishers, that's that's sometimes where they go off board is that traditional publishing has been doing this a really, really, really long time and they do know things organically. And so like, I often will say this when you're like 
if you're formatting your own book or whatever, like pick a book that you love that's maybe a similar to the genre you're writing in and see how it's laid out. <laughs> and then like do that. Like you don't have to do this from scratch, right? There are templates out there that the, the world has created for you. And I fortunately had all of those templates because I was successfully traditionally published. Um, but but mostly yeah, initially no, yeah. that so that they they kind of married so well that all of my the books that I have made myself match as organically as possible to my traditionally published books, including the size I chose. So you know I chose five by eight for my tra my trad for my indie published books because that's the size that my trade paperbacks are printed in by my traditional publisher. So that when these books are on the shelves together, they're all the same height. And like, maybe mm -hmm. I'm OCD, but I know readers really like that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And they might not notice it to appreciate it, but they're definitely going to notice it if it's too tall, right? They're yeah. definitely going to get mad if it doesn't fit. Right? Where do you, so. um, where do you get your printing and distribution from for the physical books? I do. <laughs> Since I've, I've I've taken to like, I've had two I have two mottos this year. One of them seems to be a subtle model of not giving a fuck. I, I seem to be losing all <laughs> the mottos I had to give. They seem to be gone. Um, and then the other <laughs> the other one is so I've been like calling out publicly things like, like Amazon and Ingram and other vendors that I deal with that have been really bad this year, like particularly terrible <laughs> to deal with. Um, which I never usually used to do. Uh, sometimes it's a little back-end privacy protected, but sometimes I just to get, like, I, and to answer your question, where I had a hissy fit about Ingram yesterday. Gotcha. So the answer is Ingram, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Ingram, widely known for the worst user interface ever created by mankind. And I will swear on a stack of Bibles that... Uh, they are still using a DOS-based system. Oh, <laughs> like, no. I swear it's DOS. It's the code is the code on their backend code is so janky. Um, I used to I used to be in QA for um, educational software, so like I'm like, oh, oh, this bug. Could you please fix it? Now you're ne you're never gonna fix that bug. Anyway, Ingram Ingram did a snafu with my current book, and I was like, thank you, Ingram, for for that. For just they marked it as a Spanish edition, <laughs> or I did oh somehow their system, and I was just like, "Why would you do that? <laughs> what are you, what are you doing?" <laughs> so, anyway, um, I'm going right. to blame so them I, for sure. I do, for print editions, I distribute through Ingram, and for my that gets it into Barnes and Noble and anywhere else, and, and indie bookstores can order it. They probably won't, but they can if they really want to. And if you're me and you have rabid fans, you can just stick them at them. You'd just be like, call up your local indie bookstore or walk in and pre-order it from them and they'll get it for you. It, you know, they'll winch about it, but they'll get it. It's a guaranteed sale. Um, so that's Ingram. And I experimented with um, draft to digital to direct print, which is a different way of accessing Ingram and Barnes and Noble's direct print, which is a different way of accessing Ingram. <laughs> and even though Ingram does make me cry with frustration on more than one occasion, they are still the most seamless at the moment for me um, in terms of print wide distribution. And then I do you don't I don't allow Ingram to distribute to Amazon. Well, I mean, they can, but they they end up Amazon will overwrite that. So I will also distribute print directly to Amazon. 
the biggest problem is you can't do pre-order in print. Um, I mean, you kind of can, but it's really hard. You have to get your ducks in the row super early for a pre-order. So there's a lot of me, but that's it's mostly my super fans, especially with a new series like this, who care. And I pretty much can just coax them into being patient. You know, they're, they're, they now all kind of know that the print book does, in fact, drop basically the same day that it's supposed to and they can all run and buy it immediately um but yeah they can't pre-order print and they get a little a little little tense about it <laughs> um which is sweet but there's a lot of me explaining why they can't pre-order and print because of the way the world works yeah um, print on demand yeah, but most of my far, sales but, are yeah. are electronic like yeah Still, the larger percentage of my sales are electronic, unlike in trad, where, you know, at least 75% of my sales starting out, and I think it dropped down to about 60, were print sales versus ebook sales. And now, now it's 80%, I would say, ebook. Do you do audiobooks for your self-pub? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a producer I work with, so I pay extra because I want someone else to QA it. I can't, I, I find it intolerable to listen to my own books in audio. I don't, <laughs> I can't, it's never sounds the way it does in my own head. And I, yeah, and I just hear errors. Like I just can't, so I can't quality assure my own stuff. So I have to hire someone else to do it. Um, so I have a producer I work with, and then I have a couple, I have a narrator who I love, who does anything female centered and in a historical setting, British, she's British and a friend. And then I have um, a couple of other different narrators that I've worked with over the years who have become increasingly in demand and increasingly expensive. So I'm in line for the one who I really wanted for my way for the sci-fi series um, because sci-fi is very difficult to narrate as I'm sure you both are aware Yeah. because there are alien names and alien accents and alien words. And, you know, a lot of it, it's very creative for the narrator. You know, so the narrator I worked with for fifth gender had to come up with an accent for my main alien character. So we had to sort of invent an accent, which was very fun, but also like, you know, that that's a skill set. <laughs> it's a real skill set. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, and these books are about an entertainment industry that's based on song. So <laughs> I was like, oh god, I'm making it so hard on everybody involved for audio. <laughs> so yeah, I do. And and audio is a very good income earner at the moment. I mean, Amazon took some measures to make it less effective, like more lucrative for them and less yeah. lucrative for us mm -hmm. recently. But um, but it's still pretty good for me, and uh, in terms of in terms of sales, and my books in general have always done really well in audio. Um, from trad on out, I think I grew up on audiobooks, and I kind of write in a style that's almost audio-ish. I don't know how to say it. I read all my books out loud when I'm checking beta checking and stuff um copy editing so i always do an audio pass on my stuff so i feel like tonality they're sort of written to for audio narration um so i have a quite a few fans who are specifically audiobook fans and so i make sure to to make sure i do things like put audiobooks on sale regularly for my fans and i make sure that um one of the things you get for subscribing to my newsletter is, a, is an audio is an it's a it's a short story, but it's an audio that you get to own the MP3 for. You get your own little Gale audio short story. Um, <laughs> and that 
just to make sure that that if you are a fan of mine who specifically consumes an audio that you 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 get something as well I, i'm not forgetting about you um so yeah i mean at first when i was self-publishing the books had to earn it and i told them <laughs> i basically was like um the first novellas that i put out i put out very inexpensively because i was just testing the waters and it was 2.99 my first novella in the parasol verse and uh, i basically said if you want the audiobook buy the digital edition because it has to earn its right to audio like i have to make enough money in digital and print sales which mostly means digital <laughs> to uh to have it, to pay for the for the audiobook narration and audiobooks costs you know two thousand dollars and up to make mm -hmm. for yeah. me um so i was like it's got to earn that money then if it earns it I'll get the audiobook rolling. So the audiobook readers understand this. They understand that it's expensive. They understand that they have to wait usually because it takes time to record and make sure the quality is good. Um, but then I feel compelled to make sure I meet their expectations. Again, since they come out of trad, it has to be very high quality, has to be really good audio, has to be clean, mm -hmm. all of these things that an audiophile would expect and that you would expect from a traditional publisher. I feel compelled to make sure that's the case, but that's how I am with my cover art and everything. And because I come out of trad, I do have some money to spend on that. Like I can't afford to make it as good as possible in order to match those expectations. It has had like, on a, again, Weedy, Weedy with Gail Carragher. Um, it does mean that my audience, because of trad and because of this quality control that I have in place, it does mean that they, they have very high expectations, but they're also not as price sensitive. So some authors who write primarily in, say, romance self-publishing arena, it's a whole different kind of uh, consumer. Whereas if you come out of trad, they're they're just generally less price sensitive in terms. So like, so these books are five ninety nine for the digital editions, and nobody has peeped at it. They're like absolutely fine with that, and that's because trad will come out the gate with nine ninety nine or thirteen ninety nine mm -hmm. for a digital ebook, <laughs> and so they're like, well, it's still cheaper than, you know, the next Becky Chambers novel, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So anyway, no, that's awesome. Matt, did that answer your question? Oh no, it absolutely did. We you answered my question like a million years ago. No, and yeah, I do want to. I do. Want, I, I, I no. I just. I do want to. I do will backtrack real quick. Just to say I, that question was in no way meant to minimize what you've accomplished in self publishing or like any of that. I really just wanted to get to exactly the information you gave us, which was just lessons you can take from traditional publishing yeah. and apply to your self publishing, which I think is yeah. very important. I think publishing the reason and the reason this mentality kind of gets perpetuated and cultivated is because publishing sucks so hard yeah. right now a lot of people <laughs> a lot of we, we, a lot of we were yeah. alluding to this yeah we do but a lot of people who they get very militant about self-publishing and then that attitude they go fuck everything traditional publishing yeah. is doing we want nothing to do with it they don't know what they're doing it's a broken industry and all that is true but you also have a giant audience who's been hardwired for a century by traditional publishing yeah. They yeah. do know some things about that, and you should absolutely cherry pick the things from them that will work for your self-publishing. You covered totally. all of that very beautifully, and that's really what I wanted to get and to. And so I'm not against. I'm not against it. I would still right. sell a series to Trad. It's just like yeah. this was clearly this 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 new sci-fi series. The um, I suppose I should say things for the for the pod, but Please. um, it's called the Tinkered Star Song series. And the first book is Divinity 36. This new sci-fi series was, was, I was testing the waters with Trad. 
they didn't want it. That's fine. I have the means to deal with that now. Um, but I'm not against it again. Like if I if I get seized with the creative bug and write another series that happens to be historical or happens to be something else that I think they really would love and that I have other reasons for wanting to go to chat with, I'm not against it. I might do it simply because their like distribution vehicle vehicle is so intensely great. Yes, like they absolutely. just are better at distribution because they can wholesale, right? Like specifically for print. So if I wrote something that I'm like, oh, this is like a print book like this is something that the print readers are going to want then i then i would definitely consider going back to trad um I'm, i never rule it out i i believe in diversification and i believe diversification works in every sphere like i think uh -huh. i went to self-publishing because i wanted to diversify and i wanted to see what the data was like in different spheres and that doesn't that keeps trad on the table as another diversification of my asset opportunity not the least of which is because of the hollywood connection yeah um, although that two is becoming a little bit more amorphous as we have things like what the Renfield movie, which is an adaptation of Fat Vampire, which was an indie published book, or The Martian, again, originally indie published. So like this Hollywood connection also seems to be a little fuzzier than it used to be. But, right. But I, um, no, yeah, I, I knew yeah. Renfield was based yeah. on a self-pub book. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, no, I, yeah, we, I mean, we preach. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We have reached out. I'm just to like cap that really, really quickly. Yeah, uh, please this, do. this is something I think about all the time, clearly, um, specifically in moving as I listen to more and more, especially middle, uh, mid-list authors um, become disenchanted with publishing. I'm like, I, I am writing a book about this. I promise. I'm writing a nonfiction book called Going Hybrid, which is specifically this, not being militant about self-publishing, but sort of like telling authors who are interested in trying self-publishing when they've been traditionally published, what their advantages are. Because I think even if you're mid-list, even if you're a failed debut, and that, that you, you actually have a ton of advantages coming out of trad. Not the least of which is they've started to give you a brand. Not the least of which is they've recognized the visuals for your voice. Like all of this stuff. And like, so I am writing a book for you, I promise. It has like worksheets and check sheets and everything. Um, but it's but specifically because so much advice out there for those who want to self-publish is geared at people starting out in self-publishing and only self-publishing. And I do think you need a materially different approach if you are wide, if you're interested in trad, and if you have been published in trad, I, I do think you have to take a different approach. Um, from my experience, from all this testing I've been doing with my own career over the years. Um, so don't worry, it's coming. It's just taking, I, I just I just have to birth three fiction books first. Just let me get to <laughs> <laughs> I had to put that on pause in order to like give birth to children. That's all, uh, don't worry. Um, it's aliens, they can take care of themselves pretty quickly like cats um so yes uh yeah but I, i'm glad you asked that question matt i'm glad you picked up on it because yeah i strayed into that too especially in hanging out with romance where there are people who are very militant about self-publishing and very militant about like going into ku and being exclusive with amazon and i've always been like suspicious of it and I'm yeah and absolutely it works for some people but also you know we're different if we have trad, if we've been trad, if we're coming out of trad, even if you want to leave it behind in a flame, in flames, you know, <laughs> even if you're that disenchanted with it. Um, but I think I'm also somebody who's like, don't burn your bridges. No, you absolutely. Never and I, yeah. the, constantly the, shifting industry. Despite, 
you know, when you started doing all this, despite the fact it was a very different time for like, like you were talking about both self-publishing and for, and for traditional publishing too. I personally, in my humble opinion, think what you're doing is a great model for authors in general, especially right now. You know, we always preach diversifying your revenue stream streams as a means to just survive as a freelancer. So if you want to be an author and do this professionally, make money, I think the way you're approaching things now is kind of the perfect way to go at it. So yeah. that was that that was why I love covering all that. And I've said it before and I said it again, one of the reasons you're my favorite Dish Shaker's guest is because you always have such good perspective and such good information. And like the knowledge and the tools you have are knowledge and tools I think every author needs. And that's what the show is about. So thank you for just Aww, being here. Thank awesome. you. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, does, it, it has advantage of, of like what I just went through, where if yeah. you write something that's not commercial and Trad doesn't see it as commercial and they're just not going to pick up that book, mm-hmm. you have a thing you can do with the book, right? You have another yeah. avenue. There, it, we, we, we are in, that's great. We are in a time period where we have that as authors. We didn't used to have it. It used to be if Trad shut the door on you, that was it. You That book would never yeah. see the last day yeah. until you die. <laughs> now you can build an infrastructure for yourself to give yourself and your work as many yeah. options as you can possibly have. And that's so vital to making a career out of this and getting your work out. So yeah, I completely yeah. agree with all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I got to say, like, I can activate my backlist as well, which is really exciting. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is, again, we get weedy immediately, but I'll tell a little story, which is very short little story, which is I couldn't write for two years because of lockdown. And I know other people went through that. But I'm a writer. This is how I make all of my money. And I couldn't write. And I didn't couldn't put any book out into the world. Like I couldn't write. There was nothing happening. There's no new book. And that means no income for most writers. But I had a self-publishing track going. And I had all of those books. And I could monkey with them. And I could change some cover art. And I could make put something on sale. And I could do all of these things with all of those books that were out there. And because I'd been doing that all along, I knew exactly how much money I make a month just from my backlist, just from what's already out there. And so I wasn't stressed because I was going to be fine. Like, because I knew how much money I had coming in without a new book going out into the world. And so for two years, I lived off of that. And there's not a lot of authors that can do that or can say with like predictability, like what they get a month just from their sales, right? Those Uh of us who who collect royalties from trad, we still have no idea what that royalty check is going to (laughs) be. Like, like, yeah, I don't know. Could be coming. $10,000, could be $3,000. I have no clue what they're going to give me this month. or And it only comes twice a year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so that 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 was the that's another reason to be diversified in this way is there's a way to set up a self-publishing career to augment your trad career that gives you a kind of micro income that's akin to a salary that you're like, OK, I know I get about 200 bucks from Kobo every month. I know I get about. 2000 bucks from Amazon every month or whatever it is. And that's not to be sneezed at because because it's no, it, no, it's absolutely safety. not. Yeah. You know, it gives you this like if you're a freelancer, the the unpredictability of your income as an author is really is scary to me, I guess I should say. Um, and so that for me was another reason to do this was to just be like, OK, I got a predictable income. No, I I 100% agree with all that and completely advise everyone to to look into it as they're able for their own own career. I mean, the only reason I want to do this is I also write video games. Like writing video games is my my version of that. If I didn't have that, I would absolutely be doing exactly what you're doing. So I completely recommend it. Um, right, right. But that's but that's another thing to say is like if the job is what you do, if you like need to sling coffee every day because you love it and you love 
interfacing with people and you need your brain to rest and not be creative for six hours a day and that's what you want to do then like do that and write like absolutely i happen to have the brain that also likes the self-publishing side of it that also likes the data side of it that also likes spreadsheets and stuff like that so i was very like set up to do that like it's a rest for me to be like it's launch period right now so i get to make spreadsheets and track amazon ads and stuff you know like that's fun for my brain my creative brain is resting my analytical brain is active Everybody's happy about this situation, but I'm well aware that for quite a few authors, that's overwhelming. Um, in which case, take the map pot tactic and find yourself something that earns you an income that's sort of tangential to your book writing career in some way or another that, that satisfies you and gives you health insurance. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Tree Lobster says, we're quoting publisher, we're going to give you some money for your hard work, but we're not going to tell you when or how much. And that's just, I just want to read that because <laughs> so it amused me greatly. Also, The Kids Are Asleep says, there's also a potential financial barrier to entry with self-pub, depending on how you approach it. And we need to start wrapping up, so I don't have, I don't yeah, want to get into good. that like too in yeah. But I did, I did want to acknowledge it, and I, but I do think that relates to a lot of stuff we already have talked about with, you know, like we just literally just talked about right now with having another yeah. stream of income for you. You do, you probably do need to start with that, whatever you want to do for the right. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. And have an emergency savings account and all of those sorts of a thing. I yes. mean, like. Yeah, I am well aware that with a, such a large percentage of my income now dependent on Amazon, if Amazon decides to ban my account, I'm I'm in trouble. But mm-hmm. I also have an emergency savings account, so <laughs> we'll be all right. And and one of the things that I did in order to combat that is try to get people direct sales, to so try to get people to buy directly from me, and that seems to be working out well as well. So, but yeah, yeah, no, uh, that is all. Never discount the fact that like in diversifying into self-publishing you often become reliant on amazon and then they become the sole proprietor of most of your income and that is also dangerous because again we're out of the diversification scenario absolutely all right uh mer do you have any summation you want to put on this whole thing no this was great so much information gail i really appreciate it you've given me a lot to think about because of um you know some things i might want to do in the future so Thank you so much for giving us your time. Again. I mean, we didn't get onto onto it, Mar, but you were one of the first self-published books that I ever bought. Oh, was your superhero? Your superhero book yeah. was one of the first self, like the printed version of it. From what what was that operation called? Anyway, uh, Swarm. There, Pre- that was an indie. That was an indie print. It was an indie, indie publisher print. who did okay. the print. Okay. But uh, I self-published the um, the audiobook as a podcast yeah. and. I think they were not happy with this because it was 2007. They did not buy the ebook rights. So, <laughs> like, right around then self, is when it became really, really easy to self publish. Yeah, so I've self published the ebook and that yeah. worked out really well. Yeah, I've done that as well. I mean, like, again, this is more of a conversation, but I've also done some split shares where I've done, like, indie published the UK editions and not the US. Like, it's been some, cra- I've had some crazy times, I gotta say. Um, but yeah, but. I've always gotten the impression, and you may not want to talk about this, that you were jaded by the self-publishing experience. Um, but it's changed a lot since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we could get into it. I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's been I jadedness. Loved I loved that book. I know you're like, it's like a redheaded stepchild now. But no, that book is in Playing for Keeps was amazing. I loved I the deep Lulu. I, I wrote basically fanfic. Absolutely charming. Everybody should go and read Playing for Keeps. It's so cute. Yeah. It's 
such a good book. <laughs> Thank you. It's fantastic. We can talk more about all that when we inevitably do part three of this conversation. You know, that, 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 will, that, will happen, that will happen down the road. And I'm part three of Gail word vomiting. No, never, never. This it's time all, it's, it's personal. Word, I will word continue to spoof 80 movies. <laughs> all right, Marissa, well, let's do the round of where can we find everybody and what's the shit you should go buy? I'm at Murverse.com. You can buy Station Eternity right now, which is Murder, She Wrote meets Babylon 5. And the follow-up to that is called Chaos Terminal. It will be out in, Oct- in November, and I am... Uh, you can get pre-orders now. Go to your friendly label... <laughs> go to your friendly neighborhood local bookstore and pre-order it, or you can pre-order it where things are more convenient. Either way, I appreciate it. And I'm at Murverse.com if awesome I didn't say cover. that. Got a great cover. Oh, Such the covers are phenomenal. I, I just Fantastic. can't stand. I, I can't even talk about They're it. They're so, so good. good. So pretty. <laughs> Gail, Gail what about you? Uh, what about me? Um, you can find me and everything about me at gailcarriger.com, including I'm overhauling the website, but I promise there's a good resources tab, which has a bunch of stuff for authors specifically. Just go to the authors section. Um, and that includes things I've written, but mostly it's actually links to other things that I think people should should be involved with. We did not say this on the last podcast, and I want to say it now, which is if you are in, interested in traditional publishing and you are on the debut end of the traditional publishing spectrum, you should be listening to the podcast Publishing Rodeo. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, because it is about two authors who came out recently, who debuted recently, and had completely different treatments from their pub- from the same publisher. And they are very open about what it was like, like different sizes of advances, different kinds of publicity. And then they interview people who are also very open about their publishing careers. And it's really like, like tearing back the lens on what's going on in publishing you absolutely should be listening. I don't think you should be submitting a manuscript if you haven't listened to that podcast. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah, I completely um, agree. Yeah. Yeah, I, so just listened to, yeah. I just listened to Premium Muhammad on Publisher Road. It was a fantastic episode. They do a really so good, good job. It's so good, you guys. It's so yeah. good. Um, yeah, and I say this as somebody who's like kind of not really in trad, but I started listening to it because I wanted to see what had changed. Because I feel like I can't help authors protect themselves or talk to people about the publishing industry if I don't understand what's going on in trad right now. And trad is very crazy right now. Yeah. Um, but, and then I started listening to it and I am totally getting PTSD because nothing has changed. It's exactly the yeah. same as 15 years ago. Oh, I was God. like, oh, my God. Really, it's wow. worse, honestly. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But anyway. Um, yes. So you can find me and resources like that at gailcarriker.com. I don't actually publicly talk about publishing industry all that often, except on podcasts like this one. Mostly I'm just a fiction author. So, um, and what I'm writing right now is science fiction. And it is about a, let me see if I can get my pitch right. It's about a barista on a forgotten moon who is recruited by aliens to become a god because he made the very grave mistake of singing along to the entertainment uh-huh. unit in his cafe. So, yeah, the that. aliens are listening, it turns out, and they might want you for your voice. Um, and then uh, the series follows his uh, kind of competition to become a god. And then his first, currently we're on book two, which is the tour, the music tour. They're, the bands are out on tour of the galaxy. Um, book two is called Demigod 12. Book one is called Divinity 36. 
And they have great covers by an amazing cover art designer. These great deco covers. So I'm very pleased with them. But you can check them out and see what I've been talking about. <laughs> How about you, Matt? This oh, yeah. No, of course. Uh, so MattDashWallace.com is the main hub. Um, still clinging to the dying days of Twitter, but that's looking more and more like an archive uh, gateway kind of site. So go follow me on Instagram at Matt F. and Wallace and because uh, that's the only other kind of social I'm really using right now. I just wrapped up my first Epic Fantasy trilogy with the release of Savage Crowns in June. You can now get the whole trilogy, which you absolutely should do. Savage Legion, Savage Bounty, Savage Crowns. And I have a new middle grade novel coming out in October from Catherine Teagan Books. It's called Nowhere Special. I think it's the best book I've ever written. Nowhere has a copy of Savage Crown she's holding up right now. Beautiful Chris McGrath cover. Been very lucky with all the covers on those. They've been fantastic. But yeah, so go get those and pre-order Nowhere Special. And uh, yes, Nowhere Special you. has a beautiful cover, it too. Does. It I does. It does. That's the first time that... Uh, We've used that artist on, on any of my MG stuff, and I'd love that cover to absolute pieces. It really captures yeah. the book. I love the angle of the way they're lying. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. yeah. Everyone should check out that. It's, it's, yeah, it's such a cool cover. Thank you so much, Gil. But yeah, so all those things. Buy all those books from all of us. We're all wonderfully talented, lovely people. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we appreciate it. And you, you. Can, always, you can always buy one of our books and pass it along to somebody else, too. You don't, that's you don't, true. Doesn't, they make if, lovely, if it doesn't sound like your thing, think about somebody for whose thing it might be. And they make lovely gifts. Yes, you don't even need to wrap do. it. You don't even need to wrap them because the covers are so beautiful, as we talked exactly. about. Just, just give them to somebody in your life that you want to have an awesome book. So completely, completely agree with that. So if you want to catch our next live episode, it'll probably be in two weeks from now. Today's July twenty fourth, and I can't see him calendar so whenever that is in august uh we're mondays 2 p.m eastern time on twitch.tv slash mighty or you can just search ditch diggers and any podcatcher you have to uh find the feed and get all of our episodes so i think that's it for me thank you so much for coming back gail and thanks for uh being my awesome co-host matt Thank thanks you, for having you, me, and happy birthday. Happy thank birthday. You. Oh, thank you so much. Happy birthday, Mer. Happy birthday, Matt. This podcast was produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Music provided by Devo Spice. DevoSpice.com Ditch Diggers! This is a free podcast brought to you by the kindness of our patrons. If you would like to also be kind and a patron, go to patreon.com slash mightymurr.